I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. Greetings and salutations, dear listeners. We have a very special episode of Agoraphobia this day, wherein the theme of losing autonomy over oneself, whether physically or spiritually, threads each of these audio offerings that follow as surely as a steady eel gnaws through gray matter. Our first such tale comes to us from Raven, of the Tiny Vampires podcast, who once again proves that real life can be more terrifying than fiction. Like all cockroaches, my number one motivation is making more roaches. Number two is eating. I have 16 eggs developing inside me, so feeding myself fits solidly into both of those camps. And right now, I don't care about much else. My home is under one of your bathroom sinks. It's dark and humid because of that drippy faucet you don't want to bother calling your landlord about. I have this place all mapped out, and I know just where to find food every night. I'm afraid of the light, so usually I go out after the sun goes down. There's plenty of water in the drain of the sink, and I can nibble some toothpaste here and there while I'm there. After that, it's to the floor, where there are some chewy hairs collecting along the wall. Not much there tonight. Your parents must have come to visit. So, it's time to go exploring. As I'm wandering and daydreaming about that one time there was a random piece of cat food that ended up in the bathroom somehow, I slip into the bathtub. This has happened before, but I can't seem to find the shower curtain footholds that I used last time. I'm scrambling around for hours when the sun starts coming in through the window. The light is terrifying. I feel exposed and vulnerable. I need to keep myself and my baby safe, so I flatten myself down as thin as I can and slip into the drain. Safe again 
in the dark. I nibble on what's ever growing inside the drain pipe. It isn't the best, but it beats those weeks where I ate nothing but cardboard. Suddenly, I'm roused into a panic. My little hidey hole is filling with water. Luckily, I manage to pull myself out of the drain and back into the tub with all my strength and sharp claws, only to find that it's not much safer there. The light is so bright now. All of a sudden, there you are, and smack, hit me with the bottom of the shampoo bottle, and everything goes dark. When I finally wake up, I'm outside, wrapped in a wad of half-wet toilet paper. While I recover from my disorientation and wait for the darkness, I munch on the toilet paper a little and doze. Once it starts to get dark, the wind shifts, and I smell garbage and make a run for it. On my way, I feel something coming up behind me, creating a breeze. I try to run, but start to hear a buzz of wings all the same. Instinctively, without even looking, I know what it is. And I'm in serious danger. I do my best to keep the wasp behind me, but she's so fast. When she gets close, I kick her in the head as hard as I can. My serrated hind legs can do some serious damage, but she keeps coming. I search for a close crevice to hide in, but it's too far. She bites on my wing and starts flying, only to drop me back down again. Now I'm on my back and panicking, thrash my legs as hard as I can, scrambling and trying to kick her off me at the same time. As we wrestle and I spin around on my back, the world becomes a blur of white concrete and the dazzling green of her emerald body. Right when I manage to get one of my legs under me and start to flip, she twists her body around and stings me. My front legs slowly stop working. She's still holding on, and despite finally being able to right myself, I can't get her to let go, and I can't get my front legs to work. Sometimes there's a little twitch that gives me hope, but they're useless. Then comes the second sting. This one is much more intentional. Even though I'm thrashing my head around, her stinger goes right into my neck, probing around until she gets to the part of my brain that wraps around my esophagus. She deposits a tiny drop of venom, and I jerk suddenly. Then she pushes her stinger still further into my head, another few drops directly onto my brain, and I twist my head and flail with all the four legs that are still working. Finally, she flies off. But she doesn't go far. I want to run, but can't get my front legs to listen to me. After a minute or two, movement in my front legs slowly starts to return, but I've completely forgotten why I need to run. I can smell food, but for the first time in my life, I have no motivation to go towards it. Weirdly, even though the wasp is still close by, all I really want to do is groom myself. Over the next hour, I methodically clean my entire body, running my legs and antenna through my mouth, segment by segment. I'm so busy and hyper-focused that I'm barely aware of the fact that I am forgetting everything. The mental map of my home just slips away, and eventually I forget even how I got here. I still keep grooming. I'm afraid when the wasp comes back, but somehow I have no motivation to run or hide. Being out in the open and exposed in the dim light of the evening is unbearable, but I just have no desire to move. It's the strangest feeling in the world. Staring straight at her like this, I can appreciate how terrifying and beautiful she is. She's less than half my size, and a metallic green 
everywhere except for her bright orange back legs, and she has very large eyes. When she grabs my antenna, I don't even struggle. Her oversized mandibles hold on, and then she vibrates her whole body and thrashes around until my antenna is just chopped right in half. The pain is incredible. I use my antenna to feel and smell my way through the world, so it's full of nerve endings. Still, somehow I have no motivation to run. When she starts drinking the blood that drips out of the end of the stub, I care, but don't seem to want to do anything about it. After another minute or two, I realize that I'm not paralyzed. I can walk, just don't want to. Not until she starts pulling on the stub of my antenna, just like someone walking a very old, unmotivated dog. After walking for a bit, we come to a hole in the ground. It looks so dark and inviting, but I feel like something sinister is going to happen as she pulls me inside. At the end of her burrow, I wait, physically calm but mentally terrified. She crawls on top of me and lays one single egg. She's very careful and specific about it. And then she leaves. For the next few hours, I stand there motionless, antenna aching, as she brings clumps of dirt and small rocks to slowly bury me alive. Eventually, the last whiff of outside air is gone. And it's just me and the dirt and the egg. When the egg hatches, the maggot is small. I can feel its itchy, piercing mouth puncture the joint where my leg meets my body, but still, I have no motivation to move. After some time has passed, it's hard to know how long I've been in this hole. The little maggot-looking thing sheds its exoskeleton and emerges even larger. I can feel that its teeth have changed too, when it starts using them to saw into my side. Despite the pain and my own hunger, I still don't move. Even more time passes. Hours or days, I'm not sure. My memory is still gone. I'm startled out of my stupor when the thing starts pushing its way through the hole that it has chewed into my body. I can feel that it's much larger now as it squeezes and wriggles between my leg and my wing until it's made its way completely inside my thorax. It left its old shed skin outside, and I know that once again, its mouth has changed. Now it's a large, blunt, scraping beak. I feel it continue to wriggle as it spins silk to protect my gut from the continuing feeding frenzy. First, my fat. What little is left as I've survived off the stores for as long as I've been in this hole. At this point, my memories slowly start coming back and my motivation to get away from this situation with it. But at this point, I'm weak and feeble, and it's starting to eat my muscles. Minute by minute, I can feel every scrape of its teeth, every bite, every mouthful, and there's nothing I can do. Then it starts eating at my tracheal tubes. I can hold my breath for 30 minutes, but I know I can't take much more of this. Then, worst of all, it moves on to where my eggs were developing. I weakly struggle, but there isn't anything I can do to get away from this. This thing is inside my body. I start to feel my body going numb and 
fade away as it bites chunks out of my nervous system. After I'm gone, the hateful thing uses silk to spin a cocoon inside my dead husk. And finally, it stops eating. Days later, she emerges, cracking my skeleton like an egg and struggling free. She's so lovely, shiny and brilliant and new against my brown and brittle carcass. She easily digs herself out of the burrow and flies off, leaving me completely hollow. This has been Raven Forrest Ruscalzo of the Tiny Vampires podcast. Everything you just heard was based on actual scientific research conducted on the jewel wasp and the American cockroach. Everything from the way that the mother wasp stings the cockroach, their fight and struggle, all the way to the order in which the larvae eats the inside of the cockroach. These are all scientifically accurate. The sting of the jewel wasp blocks octopamine and dopamine receptors inside the cockroach's brain. These are neurotransmitters that control things like learning, memory, motivation, and the preparation or execution of demanding physical activities like running. Emerald jewel wasps are what's called parasitoids. The adults feed on nectar, just like butterflies, but as you just heard, the larvae are parasites of American cockroaches. If you like interesting stories about insects, science, and the diseases they transmit, listen to my podcast, Tiny Vampires. I hope you enjoyed, and happy Halloween. To conclude this installment, the venerable host of the history of China, Chris Stewart, may he podcast for 10,000 years, cracks open a new tome of Chinese lore to spread the supernatural traditions of the Middle Kingdom. In Jinjiang, there was a young man by the name of Bao, who was, all agreed, most handsome. And the girls and ladies of the area around his hometown, one and all, made no secret of their desire for him. When the time was right, Bao married a young woman from the Wang family. Yet, as was common for one such as he, coming from a long line of traveling merchants, Bao was often away on business or otherwise out entertaining customers and friends. Thus it was that Lady Wang was frequently alone at home, while her husband was abroad or out carousing. One such autumn evening, Bao and several of his companions were cavorting as such in the local red light district. They progressed from brothel to brothel in an ever more inebriated state, and it was quite late indeed when Bao at last set out for his home. Lady Wang was in her kitchen, with their serving mistress, an older woman, together preparing dinner when there was an unexpected knock at the main door. The servant woman was asked to open the door and see who it was, and she found that it was a well-dressed and heavily made-up young woman. The serving woman asked for the girl's name, but received no reply, at which point she must have decided that this was some sort of family relative on unannounced business come to visit, and bid her come inside before going to tell her mistress of the arrival of this mysteriously silent woman. Lady Wong was as confused as anyone about the servant's reports. The description given to her did not match with anyone that she knew from either her own family or her husband's. And so, she went at once to the front gate to meet this interloper and determine who she might be. On arriving, however, she saw no woman at all, only her own husband sitting there. 
She turned and laughed at the silly serving woman's mistake. How could she have mistaken Bao, her own master, for some strange woman? Yet quickly, upon addressing Bao, she realized that something was indeed amiss. He was not behaving at all like his usual self, and indeed had affected all the mannerisms of a woman. Lady Wang faced her husband and asked directly just who was she speaking to? To which Bao arose from his seat and said with all grace and due decorum befitting a noblewoman, Your husband, Mr. Bao, was drinking at one of the brothels. He struck my interest and so I awaited him outside and then came home with him. Lady Wang thought that her husband must have taken complete leave of his senses. It was her husband in form, yes, of course, but all of his mannerisms and style of speech had been completely different, and what he said made no sense at all. Perhaps too much drink had caused him to go temporarily insane. Thus she called for the house's servant boys and had them send for the rest of her family at once. Together they would get to the bottom of this strangeness and put her husband back to his proper state of mind. In due haste, the family members arrived and assembled in the front room of the manor. As each arrived, Bao greeted them in turn, but in a way most strange, with a level of formality, polity, and, well, femininity, that would only be appropriate to a high-born woman. Themselves taken aback by this bizarre behavior, Bao's family members began to cajole and make fun of their feminized kinsmen, some of the men even making lewd suggestions and rude gestures at him. At this, Bao reacted harshly and responded with anger. I am a virtuous woman. If any of you ruffians come near me or lay a hand on me, I'll kill you where you stand. Now, well and truly baffled by this seemingly complete change in Bao's personality, and that it seemed to be no mere joke or affectation, but a complete and total shift, those assembled came to realize that Bao must have been overtaken and possessed by a spirit. They regained their composure, and then asked why the spirit had taken control of their family member. What grievance did it possibly have to merit such a thing? The woman possessing Bao calmed herself down and replied, My grievance, you'll see, between Mr. Bao and myself is romantic in nature. I have lodged 19 separate formal complaints against him with the city god on charges of Bao failing to reciprocate my love. Alas, the city god and his offices have proved most unhelpful, and so I've had to escalate the case and appeal to the Lord Dongyue's temple. My case has finally been slated for an official hearing at the temple on the morrow, and it requires both Mr. Bao and myself to be in attendance for the proceedings to move forward. Thus, I will be taking Bao to the temple for the next few days, and then our case will be resolved. The family, as one might imagine, was utterly baffled at this. Finally, one spoke up. And, uh, who did you say you were again? I did not give my name, came the icy reply. Nor shall I. It is enough that you know that I am from a good family, one whose name I'll not sully by having it known that Mr. Bao, my love, has snubbed its affection for so long. Well, all right, the same still gobstruck family member pressed. Can you at least tell us the charges that you're filing against Bao? The spirit proceeded to list all 19 of her charges in rapid succession, but speaking so quickly and without pause, and in such a bureaucratic and highly legal manner of speech, that even by the end, the family really felt no closer to truly grasping the nature of the charges or the entire situation. Only a few key details had become evident that because Bao had not returned her love, the spirit had become a drifting, restless ghost, and she wanted that rectified. Now, Lady Bao's wife, Lady Wong, spoke up. Wait, if your spirit is currently inhabiting Bao's body, then what have you done with my husband's soul? The possessed face of Bao smirked. 
Why, he's safely locked away in a little room outside the city god's temple until the trial tomorrow. But have no fear, it's for his own safety, and he'll come to no harm. This was altogether too much for Lady Wong, who promptly dropped to her knees and began to beg the ghost to release her husband, but her pleas were ignored completely. The ghost simply went on. In any case, I've completed my task here tonight to inform you of the situation and of the upcoming trial date. Now I'll take my leave of you. And with that, and no one daring to move to stop her, the spirit piloted Bao's body around and out of the front gates into the dark of the descending night. The family gathered a little while later in the main hall of the house and discussed what it was that they could possibly do about this. One of them suggested, Well, the ghost told us that she'd been filing complaints with the city god, but hadn't got any luck with him. Even so, she had Bao's soul imprisoned at the city god's temple, so maybe if we go and explain the situation to him, he can make sure that justice is carried out. The family members all nodded in agreement and began to gather the necessary candles, incense, and other implements that they would need to conduct such a ceremony at the temple. These in hand, they were preparing to leave, when all of a sudden, Bao reappeared from the darkness beyond the mansion's walls. Coolly regarding the assembled group, he, or she, stated, Ha, huh, you must be getting ready to make your case to the city god to enlist his help. Well, you needn't bother. I'll go ahead and release Mr. Bao now, and await Lord Dongyue's verdict tomorrow. Surely we can agree to that. The very next instant, with a gasp, Bao collapsed to the floor in an unconscious heap. When he was at last revived a minute later, he sat up, but complained of an overwhelming exhaustion. Still, his family crowded around, pressing him for details about what had happened to him and what he knew or remembered. After a few moments of gathering himself, Bao began to recount his strange experience. Well, uh, when I left the brothel, I saw the woman following me. I grew suspicious when, even after I'd made a few turns through the streets, she was still not far behind me. And then, as I was passing by the temple of the city god, well, she appeared out of nowhere and shoved me into a small room. I heard the door bolted and locked, and I was in total darkness. But even then, I could feel that I wasn't alone in there. I don't know how long I was in there. But after a while, the, the woman returned, and she said she'd let me go, and then she shoved me out of the room, and, and, and here I was. Also, I remember her saying that tomorrow there's this whole situation that's going to be sorted out with Lord Dongye. And with that, Bao gave a shrug. It was all he knew, apparently, and soon thereafter he fell into a deep sleep from which he could not be roused. He slept through the night and through the morning, and it wasn't until the late afternoon of the following day that Bao finally awoke and began to move about his house. He immediately called for the serving staff and ordered that a large meal be prepared with all haste in order to feed the legal officials who were already waiting outside the complex. He then immediately went to the front gate and opened it, bowing and gesturing as if to welcome guests inside. But to everyone watching, he did so before a completely empty doorframe. He spoke at length in a one-sided conversation, though in such a tongue that none listening could understand even a word. When the feast had been prepared and laid out, Bao himself promptly returned to his bed and then closed his eyes. At the ring of the first watch that night, his breathing and his heart stopped all at once. He had died. Yet his chest remained strangely warm, and his family, already confused and bewildered by the unearthly goings-on in their household over the past day, kept a vigil over his lifeless body. Over the course of that night, Bao's face changed color several times. At times it was blue, sometimes yellow, and sometimes red. There was no clear pattern to these changes. 
As the third watch of the night rang out, the assembled family members noticed that red scratches had begun to appear around his chest, neck, and even across his cheeks. All the following day, Bao's body remained lifeless. That night, the changes began anew. Now his hair became disheveled and lost its texture. Just before the dawn of the third day, he awoke with a start and demanded at once rice and tea, as much as they could bring. When they were brought, he gobbled them down with such ferocity and in such large amounts that it frightened his family. Yet by the end of his tremendous meal, his overall look and state had vastly improved from the deathly and bizarre pallor that he'd adopted the night prior. Bao then gave detailed instructions to all around him. His wife, Lady Wang, was to oversee the preparation of a vast quantity of wine for the officials of the underworld, who even now, Bao insisted, accompanied him. 6,000 cash of ghost money was to be gathered and burned in offering, but first it must be ensured that none of the notes were crumpled or torn. 4,000 would be burned in front of the lounge, and the remaining 2,000 in a road that ran alongside the side of the house. Bao himself then rose from his bed and went directly to the main gate, bowing repeatedly much as he'd done before, and acting as though he were seeing off honored guests, though once again, to everyone watching, no one else was there. When this high strangeness was completed, he returned again to bed and fell asleep for a further two days without waking, though not this time in his previous death-like state. When at last he awoke and was once more himself, he was finally able to explain his actions and the unusual happenings of which he'd been a part. He recounted that the night that the ghost woman had released him from her spirit prison, two officials from the underworld had come to fetch him. One to him was a complete stranger, but the other he had recognized as a former classmate who died three years prior. That, Bao explained, was what the spirit money had mostly been for. His classmate's family had been quite poor, and so Bao had sought to help the spirit official by giving him a few thousand cash that he might distribute to his family. Largely because of this and their prior relationship, therefore, Bao had been able to retain much of his freedom. He'd not been forced, for instance, to wear a spirit kang or chains while in the two officials' custody, and while his case was being reviewed. Thereafter, the three of them made their way to the spirit courthouse to witness the final verdict that the Lord Dongye would soon decide. On the way there, they had encountered another pair of underworld guardians, themselves tasked with the detention of a chained and shackled woman, who, quickly enough, it became clear was the very ghost who had possessed Bao just a day earlier, and the one who had brought these accusations against him. As the two groups passed by one another, the ghostly woman writhed about in anger and lashed out, scratching him several times on his torso and even face, hence the marks that had appeared on his body. Once before the court, it was customary for a defendant to be restrained, and the woman shouted out, why was he not done so? So at last, the shackles were reapplied to Bao as well. Once this was completed, they entered the chamber and walked for what seemed an eternity through an inky darkness while a fierce, cold wind tossed and turned Bao's hair this way and that. After some interminable period of walking, they at last arrived at what appeared to be something of a courtroom. Here, both prisoners were instructed to sit and await the arrival of the judge. Presently, the light of two red lanterns could be seen in the distance, moving toward them within this building. When they had halted at this signal, the guards came forward and removed Bao's chains once again. He was brought forward and then ordered to kneel at a spot just before the floating lanterns. He did so, and saw, as though from a dense haze, the magistrate's desk appear before him, piled high with all manner of important-looking legal documents and scrolls. Seated behind this desk was the official himself, 
wearing a gown of red and black gauze. Now rising from his seat and smoothing his beard, this magistrate from the other world looked at him and asked, Are you the one they call Bao? Bao affirmed that that was indeed the case. Then the magistrate turned away from him, and the process was repeated with the ghostly woman, who had likewise been knelt beside Bao. The magistrate turned to her and began asking her a lengthy series of questions. Though strangely, though she knelt only a foot or so from him, Bao could hear neither the official's questions nor her answers even a little bit. He took the time to notice more about his surroundings. The ground on which he now knelt gave before him like a cold, uncomfortable mud. Moreover, every so often, a cold, bitter wind would blow through the chamber, and Bao noted uncomfortably that each gust stabbed into his body like knives. He realized that this courtroom must be in hell itself. As he watched, however, he did see that the magistrate grew increasingly angry at the woman, and finally, at one point, stopped his questioning and pointed to one of the guards, and then back to the woman. The guard stepped forward, and evidently at the magistrate's command, proceeded to slap the woman about the face fifteen times in a row. Now bruised, bleeding, and sobbing, the woman had her chains reapplied and was dragged back away from the lanterns and out of sight completely. At this point, one of Bao's guards, his old classmate, leaned down to his ear and whispered, Congratulations. You've won the case. Here, let me tidy your hair for you. Bao lifted his head, and the whole court, the magistrate, the desks, the lanterns, had vanished and were no more. He was then allowed to return home, while being reminded that he had promised to make cash contributions for these officers' efforts on his behalf. Then he'd awoken back in his bed, and, once having ensured that all of his ghostly officials were paid their due wages, now sat and concluded his tale. All listening, puzzled over the identity of the ghostly woman who had sued, and evidently lost, Bao. Bao himself insisted to the end that he'd never seen this woman in his life, and certainly had made no promise or agreement with her regarding love or anything of the sort. Apparently, she was a complete stranger who had died from an unrequited love for the famously handsome Bao. Miserable in the afterlife, she decided to fabricate bogus charges against him in the hope of dragging his soul down to the underworld to be her partner forever in death. Fortunately, her harebrained scheme was quickly unraveled by the magistrate of the Court of Hell, and she'd been dragged away into its depths for wasting the court's time, where she was to receive her eternal punishment. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for 
you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back. And a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.